0: From WPVMLP in Asheville, it's the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Jonathan Ammons, and today we are bringing you our Dirty Spoon holiday extravaganza. This episode first aired in 2018 and starts with a very lovely song by David Mead.
1: Here in Hartford Christmas Eve The snow is falling on the plains Out on the runway As a man sings hallelujah Walking through the tunnel And on my ear against the phone I left a message on i I'm sorry Kiss the boys It's getting hard Just getting home There's a line in Hudson News Through the shirts and souvenirs And I'm pushing through the fray. There on the shelf of magazines Like a beacon on the bay Is the smile of Rachel Ray Hidden in the bar with Marguerite. She weighs a pour and gives a wink. Hey, Merry Christmas, sweetie pie. You're looking tired, what will it be? And then you know, this is the recipe I'm reading. And the smile of the chef who looks as perfect as a new home. Coming Marguerite just taps the heels Of a tired and swollen feet. She's a million miles away Where she could trade her sunken eyes And her dirty strands of clay For the smile of Rachel Ray Rachel's going to show us how it's done, in 30 minutes she'll be gone. Rachel never changes, never ages, never hints that anything could have ever been wrong. Halfway 3am The kitchen light's left on again I grab a beer and check the tree But there's no presents underneath And up the stairs A pair of empty little beds And by the clock she left a note Said, hon I'm sorry But I think it's for the best And the snow is falling down by the blinking little lights, oh the joy of Christmas Day. Now, may the season keep you warm, may your memories never fade, like the smile of Rachel Ray. Oh the smile of Rachel Ray.
0: Scrooge by any means, but I can be pretty ambivalent about the holidays, and Christmas in particular. One December in the early 2000s, I spent a few weeks in Honduras, helping to dig the foundations of a sewage system for a little island off the coast, and distributing donated Christmas care packages from house to house in our spare time. It was the rainy season, and so in place of snow, there was just a steady downpour. And in that humid heat, the Christmas carols rang out from every shanty church. There was even a palm tree done up in Christmas lights, like that old Corona commercial. And when we would knock on the doors, people would come to them and look at the shoebox stuffed with cheap, crappy throwaway toys from McDonald's sent from thousands of miles away. And they would look at us and say, is that all? And we would say, yes, Merry Christmas. And often without a thank you, they would simply close the door or walk away. It occurred to me later that we were never really invited in for a meal or to sit and chat. And I know precisely why. Because they had nothing to offer us. Once we were invited in for coffee, but even that seemed above and beyond. A few days before Christmas, I flew back to the States, landing in Charleston to spend a holiday with my family at our place in Kiowa Island. Straight from the airport, still unbathed in the same grubby clothes I'd been wearing for the last few days, I didn't exactly meet the resort dress code for a freshly finished luxury hotel, ironically named The Sanctuary. To me, it felt like anything but, as everything felt oppressive. The lavish chandeliers, the posh furniture, even the luxurious way our feet bounced on the suspended hardwood floors felt ridiculous. I'd literally just spent the last few weeks in a pot, and here I was in a place with attendants in the bathrooms. My family said I was being ungrateful, and perhaps I was, but I couldn't shake the look of the faces I had just seen, and I honestly didn't want to. Year after year, they'd seen Americans, well-off and stable, cruising into town to give them discarded Happy Meal toys. That is, quite possibly, the saddest thing to see in a child. Disillusionment. Perhaps the only thing sadder is to realize that your entire efforts in your third relief trip to a country didn't serve the people there so much as it just gave a sense of smug clarity and self-righteousness for having done your part. I'm not going to say something melodramatic like, that was the day Christmas died for me or anything, but it was certainly a paradigm shift, one that left me a little less kicky around the holiday season. A few years ago I was working in a little wine shop. Most of the days were spent alone at the store, so when the holiday season rolled around I was expected to help decorate the place. To help put myself in the mood, I made a quest of trying to find Christmas music that I found vaguely tolerable. I've always hated Christmas music, and found it cloyingly saccharine. So it was with a little shock that I stumbled across Ron Sexsmith's Maybe This Christmas. I'd first come across him because his name came up every time Paul McCartney was interviewed as being his favorite songwriter. So when I saw he had a seasonally appropriate tune, I tuned in. There's something about the way Sexsmith writes a tune. His lilting voice always adds to the world-weariness of his lyrics. And while they are characteristically droll and downtrodden, they always still have a note of optimism. And while his Christmas tune is noticeably more sweet than his general tunes, there was a lyric that stuck in me like a dart. Maybe forgiveness will ask us to call someone we love, someone we've lost, for reasons we can't quite recall, maybe this Christmas. I still love the way this tune is written, the resigned, tired optimism, the exhausted sense of gladness that hope might be around the corner if we couldn't but muster the energy to do something about it. That December I wrote a letter, pen to paper, to an old lover This was no Hollywood rom-com. I wasn't trying to win her back. After all, she was married by now and living in the other part of the country. I simply wrote her to apologize, to say I was sorry for being such an awful person to someone that I once said that I loved. I sent it without ever expecting to hear back. The following week, a few days before Christmas, I was sitting by myself at a bar with my back to the door when I heard a familiar voice from behind me. Is this seat taken? It was her, of course. We drank sauvignon blanc, her favorite, and caught up on lost years. And before disappearing into the night, she said, thank you for that letter, by the way. It really means a lot. In a culture that teaches that apologizing is a trait of the weak, and that to say you're sorry is an affront to your autonomy, to actively seek forgiveness from your neighbor is an act of rebellion. And in a holiday that often becomes all about giving and receiving material objects, The reciprocal nature of penance can be more rewarding than anything I've ever touched or tasted in my life. It's become a bit of a ritual for me since that first December, to find those people I've wronged and make amends. An annual penance in the form of a letter, phone call, or random visit. The kind of tradition that no tree, no tinsel, no lights could ever improve upon.
2: This Christmas will mean something more. Maybe this year, love will appear deeper than ever before. And maybe forgiveness will ask us to call someone we love, someone we've lost, for reasons we can't quite recall. Maybe this Christmas Maybe there'll be an open door Maybe the star that shone before Will shine once more Maybe this Christmas will find us at last In heavenly peace Grateful for, for the love we've been shown in the past Whoa. Maybe this Christmas mm-hmm. Maybe this Christmas
3: for many of us, the holidays mean food, and lots of it. For Winston-Salem author Ed Southern, it used to mean a long counter jam-packed with dozens of dishes, painstakingly and meticulously prepared by his grandmother's hand. In his story, Granny's Crowded Catch Encounter, Ed takes a closer look at just what that holiday cornucopia really said about the matriarchs and his family.
4: My mother was born on Christmas Eve, so that was always her day claimed by and spent with her parents down in Lincoln County, North Carolina, 90 country-mile minutes from our home in Winston-Salem. That suited just fine my other grandmother, my father's mother, because that meant she got to lay claim to Christmas Day itself. She'd never turned down the bigger stage. Widowed before she was a grandmother, she lived several places that I can recall. But the house I think of when I think of her house was only 15 minutes from the house I think of, when I think of ours. Her grandchildren called her Nanny, which got confusing when her mother and sisters were with us because all their grandchildren called them Nanny, too. Our nanny spoiled us rotten, flattered and cajoled us even as children, and hoarded the holiday cooking the way she hoarded cigarette lighters, Coca-Colas, and candies, the way she tried to hoard our affection. Before her first Christmas in the family, my mother asked what she could bring to dinner. Nothing, her mother-in-law said, with a smile, with sugar spilling from her voice. For yes, of course, she was one of those southern women who believe you can say anything and get away with it if you say it sweetly and smiling. Not wanting to seem rude, ill-bred, or lazy, my mother brought a simple casserole anyway. Oh, here, let me take that, her mother-in-law said, without a smile, without a pinch of sugar, and set the dish off by itself to the side of the counter she used as serving line. None of my mother's new relations touched it. They knew better. So Nanny kept all the cooking to herself, and she cooked by herself for days, and she cooked on her own everything she thought a one of us might like, with one exception. She baked ham roasted turkey, and fried chicken. She cooked collard greens, green beans, pinto beans, mashed potatoes, yam souffle, baked macaroni and cheese. She fixed cornbread from scratch in a cast iron skillet, then bought and heated sunbeam brown and serve rolls. For dessert, she always made a pound cake, a chocolate layer cake, and either a chess or pecan pie, sometimes both and set a tub of Cool Whip to their side. Then, to be safe, to make as sure as she could that none of hers would leave her house with a anchoring unmet, she'd make the one exception, allow the one food into her kitchen that she hadn't cooked herself. The last day before they closed for Christmas, she'd run over to Pulliam's on Old Walkertown Road and buy a pint of barbecue, chopped and Lexington-style. She'd keep it in her bursting refrigerator until just before we came, then warm it on the stove so that the dip was bubbling by dinner time. No one believes me now, not even my parents, and they were there. But for years, until well into high school, I would not eat barbecue. I avoided most vegetables, too. I didn't, couldn't explain it then, but my pickiness had less to do with taste or texture than with, well... I'm not sure aesthetics is the right word, but it's close. I didn't trust them. I didn't trust anything that bubbled and might spread across my plate. I wanted, maybe even needed food with fixed borders, limits, spatial confinements, like animals, like some of the boys at school, anything that could move across lines, but not reason, would hurt me. I just knew. By the time I tried, and in time came to love the barbecue, the green beans and pintos, the collards. I was practically grown, and we hadn't lived for years in our hometown, in Nanny's town, and I was nearly drowning for lack of feeling at home. Nanny blamed the Great Depression for her overcrowded Christmas counter. She'd talk about the hardships, the deprivations, and say, I swore that when I had my own house and family, I'd never be without a Coca-Cola. And enough food for everybody. By the age I was eating the barbecue, I was questioning Nanny's story too. I knew and know her family never had much. Her father was below her mother's station and never found the approval of her people. So after the First World War, they left their North Georgia cotton farm and came to North Carolina looking for work. They found it in cooking, Nanny's father ran the diner at the Greyhound bus depot. Nanny's mother baked cakes and other desserts for Roland Bennett's, a downtown lunch counter that was a local institution until it closed in the 1980s. They managed to buy a house roomy enough to take in boarders, and Nanny and her sister learned to cook by helping cook those big communal meals. By the 1950s, my great-grandparents were able to open their own restaurant the Twin City Cafe down on Trade Street, near the R.J. Reynolds cigarette factories, where all the region's farmers brought their tobacco to market every fall. My father started waiting tables there while still a young boy, and his stories of it are reminders that the 50s weren't as wholesome as we like to think, and the things we associate with the Old West aren't always all that old or all that west and are worthy of their own telling someday. So while the household Nanny grew up in couldn't have afforded many luxuries, they also couldn't have been quite as deprived as Nanny later claimed. They must have had some lean months and maybe years when first they left North Georgia, when first they came to Winston-Salem, but they couldn't have wanted much for food, sweet or savory, at least not for long. By the time I was grown, living on my own and living in Winston-Salem again, I had figured out what should have been clear even to an adoring child. Nanny didn't overload her Christmas counter because of the depression, but because of what we know was her depression, that hungry, lonely heirloom hurt she inherited and passed along. She cooked like a demon to keep her demons at bay. She cooked for days because she knew she could give us this and no one would turn it down or take it away. She cooked to fight off her fears, that we would leave her lonesome and forget about her, that we would not love her best, that we would not love her at all. That such food as she fixed us for Christmas is the subject of rich and scholarly study would likely confuse and bemuse her. She was most proud of her cooking, of course, but to her what she cooked was just food, just sustenance, not folk art or edible history. Whatever meaning each recipe and its execution conveyed, the subtle shades of class and plenty, of who your people were and where you came from, the tooth and claw competition between good Christian ladies, they simply were and were taken for granted. Like the weather or taxes, like church going or segregation. That I could tell her now about the cultural history of each dish laid out on her counter... The economics and intersectionality and cross-pollination would delight and oppress her, but only because I, the firstborn of her firstborn son, was doing the telling, had read such hefty books to get such notions, had been to college and learned to use such big words to talk about yams and collards and barbecue. We never once called it Q, by the way, we'd have looked sideways at anyone who did, wondering who were trying to fool. We never stretched to seem down home. We just were what we were. And if that was down home, we actually were doing our best to get shy of it. We all in our ways were doing our best to get above our raisings, even those who'd done the raising. Nanny could tell us in living detail how to wring a chicken's neck and pluck it, for that had been one of her chores in the backyard of the boarding house. Yet she told it with such bitter disdain and a mix of relief and resentment that we'd never have to do the same. She'd always made her three children call her mother. She'd ignore them even when they were small, if they called her mama or mom, or any other such diminutive. Somewhere between the Georgia cotton fields and her overcrowded Christmas counter, her people had become city folk, with all the nuance and contradiction that comes in and with the urban South. Nanny's family may have had to take in boarders, but they were not boarders themselves. They may have had to work before sunup to long after sundown, but for much of their lives they worked for themselves, not for a wage, not on a line. Even before they'd left the cotton farm, they'd known themselves, for the farm had been their own. They'd left it because they aspired for more. So she understood when we left Winston-Salem, one after another, taking promotions, starting businesses, find a place, or moving up in this world. Her youngest son off to Raleigh, then to Charlotte, a niece, and her kids gone to Texas. Then her oldest son and his family, us two, South Carolina, halfway back to North Georgia. She didn't like it, not one bit, but she understood. However far away we were, we still came to nanny's every Christmas day, all of us and our families together. Even after her grandchildren were grown and had families of our own, her house became as overcrowded with great-grandchildren as her counter was with food. She still did all the cooking, all by herself, and really all of it now, for she stopped going to Pulliam's for barbecue, as driving became more worrisome for her. Until her 80s, until the Alzheimer's began to take her. She spent days filling her kitchen for us. Ham and turkey and chicken, green beans and collard greens, yams and mashed potatoes. Her much-loved baked macaroni and cheese that no one else could get quite right. Another story for another telling. Cornbread and brown and serve rolls, cakes and pies, two liter bottles of Coke, and three pitchers of sweet tea. She cooked not a bit of it as a beacon of home or of down-home, of how life used to be, of where we came from and better not forget, of good old days, for she knew these days were as good or better. She certainly couldn't cook these particular foods so that we could someday prove our bona fides to academics and bearded hipsters, so that we could lay a claim to cultural studies, so that I could tell all this on her to y'all. She cooked these foods because those were what she knew how to cook, and cook better than most, because those foods to her were food, were what families ate when they got together on Christmas. Even if all our accents did get a little thicker in Nanny's kitchen than in our schools and Sunbelt suburbs, we knew she wasn't cooking to make us remember our history. She was cooking to make us remember her. As if we could ever forget. She was cooking to make us full and happy.
0: Tim Riddle, reading Ed Southern's story, Granny's Crowded Kitchen Counter. You can find that story on our webpage, dirty-spoon.com.
5: I want ready to go
0: Kids, eating out is a tricky thing. I remember once when I was probably five or six throwing some kind of temper tantrum in a restaurant. My father looked at me and said, do you need a spanking? And I defiantly looked at him and said, it might help. After marching me to the bathroom and back, my aunts and uncles say I sat proper in my chair and said, I'll be good now. I'm not sure what that says about me or my upbringing, but I do know that the way we are exposed to restaurants to the experience of dining in public, to the manners and traditions that are expected therein, it does something to you. It shapes you in a way. Author Heather Newton grew up spending Christmas in restaurants, an experience exotic to her and her siblings, and it clearly left its mark.
3: When I was a child growing up in Raleigh, North Carolina, my family had a tradition of inviting one or two friends to join us for dinner at the Plantation Inn every Christmas season. The Plantation Inn was a fancy restaurant attached to a less-fancy motel. It had never been part of an actual plantation, but it looked very Old South, all white with antebellum columns. Inside, the carpet was lush and red, and candy canes hung from the chandeliers. A lady in an evening gown played Christmas carols on an electric organ in the corner. To my child eyes, the Plantation Inn epitomized elegance. To understand the significance of this annual event, you must know that with four children and not much discretionary income, my family almost never went out to eat. When we did, we went to IHOP, or if Burger King had Whoppers on sale for a quarter, my dad might spring for a bag. Otherwise we ate at home. The local paper even did a full-page feature on my mother in which she proudly gave tips about how to feed a family of six on $25 a week. My parents' intent in starting the Plantation Inn tradition was to honor the friends we took as guests and to teach us children how to behave in public. Going to the Plantation Inn was a big deal. We dressed up. We hung our coats in a coat closet as we entered. The tables were set with something called cloth napkins. Our parents expected us to chew with our mouths closed, refrain from licking our plates, and, for one sweet evening, stop hitting each other. Their efforts to turn us into ladies and gentlemen succeeded during the meal, but always fell apart when it was time to leave because of one thing, the mint bowl. On a coffee table in the lobby sat an oblong silver serving dish full of butter mints. The idea, of course, was for patrons to take one mint to cleanse their palates after dinner. Because my mother's food budget didn't allow for candy at home, however, my siblings and I had no self-control whatsoever when we encountered candy elsewhere. Every year, we stuffed handfuls of mints into our mouths and our linty pockets, completely cleaning out the bowl. One fateful year, as my dad was settling the check, another little girl sat on the couch in the lobby, surreptitiously raiding the mint bowl. As we watched, she reached out and somehow hit one end of the candy dish, flipping it high in the air. Pastel-colored mints rained down and the dish landed upside down on the floor. Oh, the humanity. The hostess rushed over and swept all the mints into the trash. My siblings and I lingered as long as we could by the coat closet, hoping the hostess would refill the bowl, but she never did. As long as we live, we will never forgive that clumsy little girl. The guests we invited to the plantation inn included close family friends and people my parents wanted to know better. A few were couples, but most were single. They were teachers, writers, a minister, a woodcarver. My favorite was a young man who had served as a missionary in Kenya. He spoke a made-up language called alfalfa, similar to pig Latin, only funnier. When he told a story in alfalfa, my normally reserved father laughed so hard, tears spurted from his eyes. The trait all our guests shared was that they were, quote, interesting and willing to engage with grown-ups and children alike. They entertained me and they listened to me. In his book, Confederates in the Attic, Tony Horowitz describes the Plantation Inn as a, quote, faux plantation motel on a busy suburban road right across from Kmart, where a group designed to prepare youngsters for Confederate citizenship had decided to have its annual meeting. For me, Despite its politically incorrect name, the Plantation Inn was not a nostalgic symbol of the fallen South. I remember how warm and cozy it always was, the savory smells that rose from silver-chafing dishes on the buffet line, the strong hands of the man who carved the roast beef, his uniform and chef's hat as crisp and white as the snow we never got for Christmas in North Carolina. And I remember the lessons I learned there. Treasure your friends, old and new. Show them you value them and enjoy them.
0: That was Catherine Campbell reading Heather Newton's Lessons in Table Manners. To find that story and the accompanying art by Corinne Pease, go to our webpage, dirty-spoon.com.
6: Good food and lousy beer This winter's so dry And the dirt road so dusty At the lightest fall of rain The bacteria bloom You don't have to be alone To be lonesome It's here crashing like a brick through the window and it's Christmas so no one can fix it Situation when you're desperately trying.
0: sound? That's the sound of a penny in a massive steamer. So last Christmas Eve, my friend Margarita Gonzalez invited me to her house for a Christmas Eve tradition for her family, a tamalada. Simply put, a tamalata is a party where everyone gets together, drinks a bunch of beer and tequila, and makes tamales from scratch. At the end of the night, everyone takes home a big bag of tamales to keep in their freezer and reheat whenever. At the Gonzalez family tamalata, the house is divided. Upstairs, friends and family rotate in to cook tamales in a giant stockpot steamer. The penny at the bottom is because that sound lets them know that there's still water in the bottom, because this thing has been at a rumbling boil all day long. Tamales go in and come out as each batch gets made. In the basement, Margarita's father leads the eager volunteers in what looks like a Christmas Eve culinary sweatshop. Half a dozen folks hunch over a long table, dipping spoons in the masa and spreading it on the corn husks, then spreading the pork on the masa and rolling the husks, folding and setting aside before they make the next one. John's recipe for these tamales has actually been published by Texas Folklife Resources. You see, John has quite the story himself. A native son of San Antonio and graduate of University of Texas, John was the son of Mexican immigrants. These traditions run deep in his blood. John had a 45-year career in journalism, reporting for the Associated Press, the Dallas Morning News, the Houston Chronicle, and a host of other news outlets, covering state and national politics from the Texas-Mexico border. He even reported from Guantanamo Bay. John retired not too long ago, which is how he and his wife ended up here in the basement of their daughter's house in North Carolina, overseeing a motley crew of friends struggling not to make a mess while drunkenly stuffing tamales. I chatted with John and his wife, Jamie, This was recorded Christmas Eve, 2019. If you could just uh, state your name for the record, sir.
7: John Gonzalez, G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-Z. Awesome. And I'm from San Antonio, Texas. And, um, well, let's see. We're here today making tamales. And I brought all the ingredients from home. Yeah? Yeah. So, And home for you is Austin, right? San Antonio. Antonio, Antonio. Okay, San Antonio, which is close to Austin, but we're a little further close to the border. And um, my mom was born in Mexico, and immigrated in a century ago, and um, she brought with her a family recipe that started with cooking a whole pig's head, and they used all the different parts that come from that to make a little, you know corn meal sandwich, basically, which is the tamale. So anyway, what I brought from Texas was some freshly ground corn right here. And I've added some animal fat to it. And now it is ready to be like spread into a shape like, uh, I don't know what you can compared to, but it's tubular, but it's a, a filling wrapped in corn, and so it's surrounded by a corn husk that keeps it all together.
0: And the corn almost looks like a hummus at this point.
7: It is. Uh, it's finely ground. That's super fine ground. And what they do is they start with the corn kernels that are dried, but they... They do a process to them called uh, nixtamalization, and it's from like an Aztec word or something. But they take the coating off the corn uh, kernel, and it softens it a bit and changes the dynamics of it. But anyway, the corn that's used to make tamales is usually through the process of they basically soak it in lime. Um, Lime powder, you know, that's um, what is used to take some coating off the outer side of
0: the corn. So, And this, uh, you're stuffing it with, is this chorizo or is this Well, it's a or what, what kind we of a
7: homemade through? chorizo, you might say. Um, in Texas, I got some pork and I boiled it. It was very, very lean. Okay, so it's like these little roasts, um, you know, watermelon, not watermelon, but about, about a watermelon size, but 15 pounds or so. And I cooked it way down, uh, ran it through a, a meat grinder. And it came out um, very uh, fine, like ground meat, like chorizo. But the time, the time-consuming part, which I did do several days ago at home, taking my time, was to make the red chili sauce, mm. which you could theoretically get a bottle of anything and add it to the meat and make your filling. But what I do is I start with um, chilies, dried chilies, that are. Grown in Mexico, mostly. Yeah. Two, two kinds that I use. One is called um, a chile ancho. Right. And this one here is a guajillo. And so you wind up... Um,
0: and what's the difference between these two?
7: They have a slight, slightly different flavor. I forget which is considered more sweet, but I think it's the ancho. And they're not super hot, either of them. So um, they're just flavorful and give a good, rich flavor. Sour and, and sweet. A whole and, mix uh, of little, flavors. Yeah. And these are the, two of the three chilies that go in most moles. Yeah. So that's why it's a little bit similar. It's like a cousin, really. But what I wound up doing was you start with these dried chilies, you get them uh, soft, and then it's a question of turning them into a sauce. And it it's really hard to um, get all the hot stuff out of these but so you have to take your time getting all the seeds and all the veins out of it or else it's just like killer hot so it had to spend a lot of time individually opening up each chili and um, getting rid of the seeds and the veins and stuff and then um, basically boil them run them through a cuisinart run them through a sifter to really smush out the get through the the all the skins, you know, separate the skins and the bulkier stuff and any seeds that might be left. So that's left with, you're left with like beautiful red puree or like a sauce. And so that's what I've added to this stuff with a couple of additional ingredients such as um, pork broth that was from the original pork and um, just some few other spices like, you know, a comino. Garlic, uh Cumin. Oh, cumin. Awesome. Yeah, cumin, garlic powder, stuff like that. Awesome. Basic, very basic flavoring. Um, and that's the style my mom um, grew up with. The same combination, kind of light on the garlic, but mostly cumin and oregano. And um, so a lot of the flavor comes from the animal fat that's in there and the chilies. So you'll you'll find out. Where did you learn this? From my mother, because um, this masa is, um, it's got a lot of resistance to it. And at one point in her life, she said, I can't do it anymore. My hands, you know, it hurts my hands to work the masa. And I was in my maybe 20s. And she said, would you help me? I'd previously been... Like, never in the kitchen with her. She didn't want anybody around and, you know, a bunch of kids stay away. But she finally asked for help. And um, so it does take a lot of, like, muscular activity just to work the dough. A lot of kneading the dough. Well, mixing it with the fat, which is basically melted lard. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So then spices and stuff. Um, I brought a copy of the recipe that is kind of close to what my mother used. And she saved it because it was close to what she used. And I was going to share it with Man, you if you wanted to. Man, that's a
0: lot of ingredients. Oh, f- yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> no, yeah. p- feel free. We'll just leave it out. <laughs>
7: <laughs> um, and they're all in
0: there. MSG.
7: <laughs> no, no MSG.
0: It says MSG yeah. to taste. No, thank you. <laughs> uh, never... Um. I'm just curious about her background. Like, where was she from? Where did she grow up? Where did you grow up? What's the What's the Um, family background?
7: Myself, I'm a mix of a Mexican-born person and an American-born person. My dad is totally Mexican, but he was born in in the United States. My mother was born in Mexico, and she was actually born in the middle of the Mexican Revolution, which was in the 1910 era. So she was born in that era, and after all the fighting was over, her family left everything behind and moved to South Texas because uh, the nation was in tatters and stuff. What, what year? That was about was that in the 20s, in the 1920s. Wow. And so that's when her family came, and they brought all their cooking and traditions with them, uh, which I was explaining is basically cooking with pork. Um, for Christmas doing the whole head so um anyway she brought all that and her family would you know sisters and stuff would all do it collaboratively um so she knew how to do it but she didn't really pass it on to me until i was much older and like i was saying it was to help her because the physical work but yeah we all grew up in san antonio where she migrated to and she met my father who was um from a, a long Mexican bloodline also, but all of my family is from Mexico, one generation or another, like my dad's is a couple removed. I'm only two removed. Jamie's on the other hand, they're from Czechoslovakia, or Bohemia, what do they yeah, call Yeah, Bohem- Bohemia. Bohemia? Bohemia. Uh, Italy, Mexico. And Spain.
0: And Spain, so. So you all have all the good foods flowing through. <laughs>
7: <you>. <laughs> I mean, we yeah, well, not. Christmas we often do like a theme. We've done white Italian and... That's a Eve mm-hmm. tradition. Italian with, uh, I think it's seven fishes or something.
0: Uh, yeah, feast of seven fishes.
7: Uh-huh. Yeah, so all the white foods are there. So we used to do that a lot when my aunt was uh, still alive, and that was... Fun and delicious. <laughs> <laughs> what I didn't finish explaining about the family tradition that my mom brought was um, not just the cooking part. Is when you do this, okay? Because yes, it is around Christmas, but to be precise, our, at least in our family, we had a, they made a small number of tamales to be eaten after midnight mass.
0: Oh, so it's so it you the, don't have to work on the day of mass kind of thing?
7: Yeah, well, that too. was just an extra effort It was, you, have... If have, you stayed up yeah, extremely late, it was this one reward that went along with <laughs> you went out to midnight mass, stayed up late, and had tamales. And that was like one of the few times of the year we even ate them. But it has to do too with like, well, when do you want the kids to open the gifts, right? So yeah. there's some people that have their own traditions about all of that. But the old school, we both grew up Catholic. You know, it was... Church, church activities all around. And yeah, and so the tamales were just like one thing, like one dish out of this whole, you know, celebration. And so now you can buy them any day of the week, of course, and with multitudes of fillings and stuff. But right. back when it was pretty much beef, pork, and that might be it. Once you get away from like, Families and stuff, you can find some very bizarre tamales.
0: Oh, I can imagine. Because
7: they've gone all kinds of different directions and fillings and who they're trying to appeal to, I guess. But in our Whole Foods, I mean, they run about $3 a piece or something. Um, But we produce them for far less than that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What would you say it costs you to produce uh,
4: Mm,
0: a tamale?
7: Days of work. 70. yeah. It's at least <laughs> so, um, three or four full days. At least three or four full days of labor. Yeah. Okay. And um, hmm, ingredients, not that much. Uh, fifteen pounds of corn masa was about twenty bucks, and then a few pounds of pork. You know, fifteen pounds of pork, a bunch of big, big old roasts. Yeah. Maybe tw- another twenty-five bucks, and. Um, the Chilies are just pennies by the pound, so yeah, it's how poor people feed themselves, you might say. What's the purpose of the timing of the Christmas tamale party? um well, um enough it, people to get together to have hand, enough hands huh. to do the work together It's part yeah. of social very much part social, yeah, to have the
0: and the uh, gathering. I assume you make a ton of these. How many do you think you'll make tonight? Mm, uh, twenty-five yeah. dozen, easy. That's an insane
7: amount of tamales. Well, we've already made five, well, maybe five, ten dozen upstairs. What we've happens already.
0: to all these tamales?
7: <laughs> they go away in big plastic bags, and it, if stakeholders, you know, hang around, you know. They get their reward. Stakeholders, oh, I like that yeah. Stakeholders <laughs> are those who, who are helping out in the process. So there's to some people Center. like like, oh I'll come by and try your tamales. It's like <laughs> that's not the same as like, you know, putting some labor into it. Staying but, there getting your hands dirty. Yeah, yeah. but I'm
0: happy to exchange labor um,
8: for tamales anytime.
0: Anytime. I w- I did I'm the, here uh, all night. So walk me through this. Show me how you do this. Okay. <clears throat> right. Crash course. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'm paying attention.
7: Well, you start with a supple
0: corn husk
7: that, if you look at it, it has a rough side and a smooth side. And so the smooth side happens to be the one where it tends to curl around the corn like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the one you want to use. Um, and don't tell me scientifically why. I have no idea, but it works out better. That way it's... Um, So next thing is I'm going to apply probably three or four tablespoons of masa, the cornmeal, to this in a kind of squarish area in one of the corners. And basically what I'm doing is creating a space to wrap some filling in. And I get all my digits in here to smooth it out to get a certain consistency. And some like them thick. And so you can go get somewhere they're big and fat and it's all masa, but I prefer to make them where the masa now, I was say, isn't you're, you're isn't,
0: rolling that thin and I noticed that at the top you aren't using the top portion of that paper.
7: Well you'll see why. Because yes. it's actually the bottom.
0: Okay. That's where you flip it over to cool. seal. So the
7: now paper. I'm adding a tablespoon or so
0: of ground pork that so, but let me interrupt you. You haven't even filled the whole corn husk. You've just got like a quarter of the corn husk, yeah, okay. the corn husk filled.
7: Right. Because all I need is enough to totally enclose that filling. Yeah, okay. Okay. To make a, a seal and kind of overlap of the, the corn because it, it'll it stick and seal and enclose and, and it. So that's so a pretty if,
0: minimal amount compared to like yeah, You could how put, big it feels when you're actually eating it. Let's
7: hope so. <laughs> but... Um, you could put more dough over here, but it just is extra. It doesn't need to be there. It's, this is sort of convene, convenient and efficient. I've got it totally encircled. So there you go. So then this...
0: You just made that look really easy.
7: I've done it many thousands of times. And um, you could do it too, and you should do it. It's really like you. you, you, you cannot screw this up. Although, yeah, people have now that I think about it. But it's it's still edible most of the
0: time. John Gonzalez and his wife Jamie recorded Christmas Eve 2019. To get John's recipe, which is, oddly enough, the first recipe we've ever published at Dirty Spoon, head over to dirty-spoon.com. Christmas will break
8: your heart If your world is feeling small no one on your phone, you feel close enough to call, Christmas will crush your soul, like that laid back rock and roll, but your body's getting old. That your heart would melt with time
0: Dirty Spoon
3: Radio Hour is a
0: production of Dirty Spoon Media.
3: You can find the text from our stories on our website, dirty-spoon.com. The incredible art on that website is by Katrin Doza, Marianne Papineau, Kelly Minear, Garnett Fisher, Paul Choi, and Corinne Pease.
0: Music in this episode by David Mead, Ron Sexsmith, The Wood Brothers, Pedro the Lion, Goldman, The Ventures, Ed Harcourt, Oliver Arnalls, Arthur Lyman, Ben Lovett, Sylvain Chaveau, Amad Jamal Trio, and Phoebe Bridgers. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, handles our website and marketing, and sources our stories.
3: Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief and handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, music, and conversations from the people who shape what we consume right here on 103.7 WPVM LP Asheville. Happy Holidays!